from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. As always, be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter to get the latest show direct to your inbox every Tuesday, as well as announcements for upcoming live streams. On today's show, we have a writer that blends gore and gross with dynamic storytelling. He keeps the reader engaged as he seamlessly maneuvers through multiple genres. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, Season Pass, as well as his upcoming novel, Wicked Awake, Dead Friends with Benefits. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Merrill David. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me on here. I, I love this show, and so I'm happy to, to be here with you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this fifth day of June 2023. I came across your book by way of Bookstagram recommendation, as well as the announcement for the Texas AuthorCon. So picked up your book, Season Pass, and what I found was a great story based in the surreal atmosphere of the Carnival Midway that brought up fond memories of my own childhood, riding roller coasters until I puked. <laughs> Your prose has a steady, enjoyable flow. The violence is graphic but artistic, and the story is unique and irreverent. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. I hope that you're talking to the right person. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm honored. I appreciate all the great things you just said about the book. I mean, that's the whole reason that we do what we do. You know, putting books out there is... Uh, Maybe not everybody, but that's why I do it. I'm doing it for the sole enjoyment of writing. But to hear something like that, where uh, a reader actually uh, had a good time enjoying it as well, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, so right off the bat, we are brought into a tragic event that results in a very graphic, untimely death. One of the writing tactics I've always heard thrown around by the authors that I've interviewed is to draw the readers in with a good cover, check, you got that, then immediately suck them into the story with a compelling first scene. So was the reason you started with such a graphic, brutal act of violence a tactic to really draw the reader in? And what did that scene establish for the overall story arc? Uh, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, you have to have a cover that's going to get the attention, first of all. But I've also found that, yeah, I mean, you want to grab your readers right from the start, right off the bat. So I don't think I did that with Wicked Awake, with my very first book. And I'm still learning here. I mean, I've got a long ways to go. I'm still learning the whole process. But I did pick up on some reviews for Wicked Awake that people thought it was kind of a slow start. And some people called it a slow burn. And I think some people or maybe a lot of readers kind of want to get right to it. And if you don't, then sometimes you lose the uh, the less patient readers. Now that I've kind of learned that, I like to start out with an exciting scene right off the bat to kind of grab their attention. But that scene was also, there was a lot more to it than just being extra brutal just to get attention. I mean, that scene, I wanted to give people... I wanted them to know about my character there, about Maggie, and exactly what she went through, the kind of suffering that she went through early on in her life, 
and to maybe not so much rationalize or justify what she's going to do later in the book, but maybe somewhat explain why she does some of the things she does later on. The reviews that you got when they were referring to it as a slow burn, were they saying slow burn as like derogatory? Oh, with Wicked Awake? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, and not all readers are like that, but I kind of am seeing where horror novels and books tend to be shorter. And I know Wicked Awake is a zombie novel, and those tend to be a little bit longer than the more than the more extreme stuff. But I think people also sometimes don't realize, especially with, with Wicked Awake, it's a series. So there's a lot of background information that in order for that series to continue, I mean, there's a lot of information that you have to give them up front so that the rest of it kind of makes sense. Maybe that's where I need to be better is to kind of spread that information out throughout and not so much up front. And so I'm still learning this whole process. I mean, this is all brand new to me. I have seen reviews where they kind of made it sound like a slow burn was not necessarily a good thing, you know, because maybe some people weren't patient enough to wait it out, you know? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of partial to slow burns myself, I guess. <laughs> I'm not patient in most areas of my life, but <laughs> I guess when it comes to a slow burn, I might have uh, more patience than the average reader. So, yeah, I was just curious. I was like, I've never thought of a slow burn as being a bad thing. But uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some people do use it as a derogatory. So that's the way I took it. Maybe not. Maybe I misunderstood what they were intending, but uh, that's kind of the way I took it. Okay. Well, there was a particular ghost that seemed to haunt a particular roller coaster that was originally called the corkscrew, but was shut down due to the accidental death of the occupant. And it was later revived and renamed the Black Widow. So did the ghost have anything to do with the preservation of this particular roller coaster? And if not, what was it that kept it from being completely scrapped? You know, I when I wrote the book, I didn't really have that in mind, that Maggie was the one responsible for that. I think maybe she would have if she could have, you know, to take credit for that happening. So the Crescent Park Amusement Park is really based on an amusement park that was actually there in Warwick, Rhode Island, back when I was a kid. It was called Rocky Point. And so there really was a ride called the Corkscrew. And in my research since, and when I was doing the book and I went back and kind of researched that park, I found, and I didn't know it until I did that, I found that the corkscrew and a couple other rides, when the park closed, they were actually sold off to other amusement parks throughout the country. So one is, I think it's somewhere in Massachusetts, maybe not the Black Widow. And I think one made it all the way over to like, uh, like Washington State or something like that. So oh, okay. that's kind of where I got that idea. That stuff really does happen where... You know, parks will sell off old rides or even sometimes if they bring in newer rides, they'll sell off the older ones. And so uh, and these rides find new lives in other parks and stuff. So that's kind of where I got that from. But, you know, like I said, if Maggie could have done something like that, she probably would have because she did a lot of crazy things in the book. Yeah. So. Yeah, throughout reading this entire book, we used to have a place in Houston called Astroworld, mm -hmm. and right next door was Waterworld, so, you know, the uh, water park version, and man, a lot of uh, great memories growing mm -hmm. up, but uh, I forget what year that got shut down and just started getting violent for some reason, a lot of gang oh, wow. activity, and oh wow, yeah, okay. it's really crazy. So neither one of those parks are around anymore? Not at all. Just, uh, oh. I think okay. it's, uh, I think it's parking for the Reliant Complex where they have the rodeo. I think it's additional parking that oh, people get shuttled to. Gotcha. So. gotcha. Yeah. But and back in the day, you had the Astrodome, too. So I guess everything was Astro back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. In Houston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so circling back to the book, the protagonist of the story, a young man named Artie, seemed to be obsessed with risking his life on a roller coaster that had a high prevalence of accidental death, including the death of his father. Was he just an adrenaline junkie? And if not, what was drawing him into such a self-destructive pattern? I don't really think it was that he was an adrenaline junkie. I think it was kind of more where just that experience that traumatic experience early in his life was really taking control over him. And I think, you know, there's a term out there, people who have suffered traumatic events and experiences, they go through a process where they feel like they need to remove the landmines 
from their past. And I kind of feel like that's what he was doing. He was kind of feeling like he wanted to do similar things and to kind of take control of the situation and rather than the situation taking control of him. That way it kind of gives you the power. And unlike when, you know, earlier on, he left that experience feeling helpless and vulnerable and all that. If he can go through the experience again and he can control the way he feels and the way the outcome goes, then I think it's a win. And I think it does exactly like that term says, removing the landmines from his past. So that's kind of where I was going with that scene right there and with all the times that he wanted to ride those rides. Okay. Removing landmines. And that's kind of a uh, genuine therapy concept. Yeah, I think a lot of people, or maybe not a lot of people, but I think some people who maybe experience PTSD and stuff like that, I think they actually, I don't know if they want to or if it's kind of suggested that they do this, but they kind of go through similar experiences. But now they have learned how to control and combat those thoughts and those feelings from the first time around. And I think it kind of helps them combat the trauma. And uh, yeah, they call it removing landmines. So I'm not a doctor, but I kind of, kind of read a little bit about that. So that's kind of, (laughs) I think it's a real thing. Uh, Listeners at home, this is not a uh, therapy segment. We are not physicians. Please seek the help of a qualified professional. No, (laughs) we don't even play doctors on TV. Not even on the weekend? Damn it. No, not even on the weekend. We tried. Well, Artie and a friend of his are involved in a horrific car accident The driver of the other vehicle involved eventually crosses paths with Artie again, and that particular character is painted as quite a bit of a coward all the way around. Did you have a concrete way of how you wanted the audience to feel about this character? Because even though he's painted as being kind of pathetic, I would think that if the reader put themselves in his position, they might be able to empathize with him. Yeah, I can see that. So Bruce is the character, and you're right. I was building him up as kind of a pathetic, kind of a, not so much a loser, but an undependable boyfriend to his girlfriend in the book. But it was really kind of about character development with that character. I wanted readers to see him at his worst. I think we might talk about later during the fire at the nightclub. And so he's at his worst there. And I kind of wanted to show as the book, goes on and towards the end where he's able to redeem himself. And actually that same girlfriend who he let down early on in the book at the very end when she needs him the most and she has a very peculiar favor to ask him, but he comes through on that one. So it's kind of what I was doing there is just a lot of character development with him to show that people can change. Yeah. All right. Well, (laughs) listeners at home, I'm going to apologize to you in advance for this. It's the next major incident, and it may create some spoilers. I'll try not to, but I, I have to get specific in order to ask the question. The scene is when Artie is at a rock show at a club called The Stallion to see a band called Sharkbait, where there's a fire that starts as the result of acoustic foam catching on fire from onstage pyrotechnics. Now, this has got to be inspired by the fire that occurred at the club called The Station, where a band called Great White was playing, and the fire occurred under the same circumstances. Am I correct on that? Yeah, you definitely are. So is your knowledge of that event just from the news, or do you have any first or secondhand knowledge of that incident? No, so that whole incident has always been close to me. So I lived in that same town of West Warwick, I probably lived about five miles down the road from that club. Mm. And so... So second that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing is, is, I lived there for about a year, and I moved several months before that incident. But I always liked that band, Great White, and I was really into rock and concerts. And I've always had this sinking feeling that if I hadn't moved here to Dallas, for a job opportunity that I might still be in West Warwick and I probably would have gone to that show. And who knows, who knows? I mean, it's just, it's real eerie to me because I really do think I might've been at that show, but I mean, that's not all. I do know a friend of mine that I used to work with his name. I don't want to give you his last name, but his first name is Artie. And so he's kind of my character that I based this um, protagonist on. So he actually was there. He actually did survive the fire. He made it out alive. Wow. And then I've been told that there was 
a girl that I used to work with who could not make it out. And I can't confirm that because I've seen the list of all the, the victims and I don't recognize the name. So unless maybe she got married and she had a different last name, that's a possibility. But I've been told that someone that I used to work with may have been in there and may not have made it out. So I can't confirm that. But I do know at least one guy. And that's already a friend of mine. He was actually on a documentary that I saw somewhere where he was interviewed for a couple minutes. But, uh, but yeah, this scene is definitely uh, my take on that true incident. I remember I didn't really read too much into it, but I remember them saying that a lot of people's mistake with that fire was that they were running away from the stage when if they would have ran towards the side entrance of the stage, there would have obviously been an exit because everybody's trying to cram into the same exit, which is not going to work. But there is an aspect of the story in the book where there is something preventing people that were actually trying. Is that part true or was that artistic license for the book? The security guard part? Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted me to say it or keep it a secret, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to go much farther than that. But when I was doing research, I'd never heard that before. When I was doing research, I came across a story where some of the witnesses who had been inside were interviewed and they said that that had actually occurred with the security guard and that that actually happened. So I don't know if that really did happen or not. Mm -hmm. I would hope not, but I think you're right. I think there were several failures. I mean, first of all, the fire was the first failure, but I don't think that the exits were clearly marked well enough. And I think that wasn't the sprinkler system. I don't believe. So there are a lot of issues with the whole building and that whole situation. So like I said, the other one, I can't confirm it, but I mean, that's awful. If that really did happen, that's awful. And so I did later on in the book, I did kind of go on with that theme with one of the people that already runs into later on. So, but anyway, that's about all I know about that incident. Okay. Well, from this point on in the story, Artie enters a very surreal world and falls in love with a strange woman named Becca that, from what he can remember, saves him from the fire. It's unclear who she actually is. She may be a stripper. She may be a nurse. She may be a naughty nurse. (laughs) But she (laughs) definitely becomes his caretaker and becomes very close with him after he reveals some very traumatizing things that he experienced in his childhood. So were the particular details of Artie's childhood abuse created for their shock value? I know we kind of talked about this a little bit with the beginning scene, but if not, what was the purpose for such a depraved form of abuse? Yeah, you know, originally I didn't have it planned out that way. But then as I got going along, I was like, well, I do want Artie and Maggie to later on kind of be able to see eye to eye and kind of understand each other and actually have a lot in common. So I got to thinking maybe Artie needs to have suffered early on in his childhood kind of the way Maggie did Mm -hmm. so that they can really have an understanding and somewhat of a bond. I mean, it's an odd bond, but I mean, for them both to have gone through trauma like that, Mm -hmm. you know, that might explain why they end up doing some of the things together that they do later on towards the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might sound weird, but it always impresses me when somebody can really go above kind of the standard, like in this particular instance, we're talking about childhood abuse. Someone can go over the top to a place where it's still within the realm of reality. It's not like you're saying anything that's unreal, but... Like kind of creates something that you've never heard before that really disturbs you. Like that, that may be sound odd to some people, but I think in the realm of storytelling, splatterpunk, what have you, that it's a pretty impressive feat to uh, pull off. So kudos to you. <laughs> no, thank you. No, I completely agree. I mean, sometimes the scariest things that you can imagine are things that happen in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes if something is too over the top and too unbelievable, it's kind of disgusting and and all that, but it's not quite as scary because it doesn't seem quite as real. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you completely. Yeah. 
Well, there is a very cleverly named paranormal investigation group with the very clever acronym RIP, which stands for Rhode Island Paranormal. And this is the perfect conduit for Artie to interact and develop a bond with someone that's still living. So in your world within the book, what are the laws that govern how ghosts are able to interact with humans? Yeah, so in my world here, I was kind of going off the premise that there's earth, there's the heaven, there's the hell, but then there's also kind of this limbo, kind of like a purgatory, where sometimes after humans pass on, they may end up in this purgatory or limbo until whoever, some greater force, greater power, has their final verdict on to where to send this person. So I have some ghosts and some humans who have passed in that realm. And basically I've got it to where when they're in that realm, they can kind of see what's going on in the other places. They can kind of see what's going on in heaven. They can go down below and see what's happening in hell and on earth. And of course they can interact with other people in the same realm as them. But depending on how much ability and you know practice and skill they have, they can also somewhat interact with people in different realms. So I've got it to where the ghosts, they may not be seen by the humans on earth, but they can kind of touch them. They can kind of move some objects around and they can be sensed, but they can't really be seen so much. Okay. And if it's not too personal, do you have a belief in real life that's uh, similar or has some relation to what you kind of construct for the story? Uh, I do believe in paranormal and ghosts. I don't know about the whole purgatory thing. I mean, I definitely believe there's a heaven and a hell, and I don't know if there is an in-between, but I do believe that there are spirits out there. I think some are kind of more the friendly, you know, like your family members that have passed on and they miss you. So they want to be with you or they want to know that you're still in their minds and that they're still around and accessible. And then I think there are also evil ones too. And I don't know if it's because they left earth in poor terms and they're not happy about where they're at and they're pissed off that you're sitting in their living room or something. Uh, I don't know. I do believe that there are those different spirits out there. And uh, like I said, the purgatory thing, I'm not real sure, but it's a possibility. If there is a purgatory, I hope that children don't ever end up in it because I think that would be a bad place for a mischievous child to end up. <laughs> you know, like a, an adult would have it in their head, probably like, well, I've got to watch what I do because I want to get out of here and go this place or that place. Seems like a child uh -huh. would be like, oh, I don't care. I just want to break shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. That would be a better place for like somebody who's kind of borderline you know yeah. like an adult like a higher power is like well they did some fucked up shit here but they did some <laughs> good things here and so they still kind of decide where to put you, you yeah know? yeah and so maybe so maybe while you're in purgatory maybe i don't know maybe somehow you can alter things that happen on earth or something to change the balance of where you're sitting on the scale or something i don't mm. know but uh, I don't know. It's, uh, or it's like community service. You got to do some good shit before yeah. they'll let you the rest of the way in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Exact. Good point. Well, at the end of the book, there's a scene that involves a freak show and you mention each part of the freak show's backstory is in a short story of yours that I guess has been published in a previous anthology. Is that correct? So you talking about the elephant in the room? Yeah, uh, just all of the different members of the show. I think you said if you want to know the backstory for this character, it's in this mm -hmm. short story and that character, that short story. Were those? Yeah. Yeah. So what I kind of did is I kind of used season pass kind of like a springboard to introduce a whole bunch of freaky, weird, bizarre characters. And so. Yeah, like you mentioned, so Warm Boy is actually a short story that I did include at the back of the season pass book. Yeah. But then part of the freak show at that amusement park in that group is the new Elephant Man. And so I have just recently released a short story called The Elephant in the Room. That's in a uh, anthology called Head Blown. And then there's a ghost that you may recall his name was Clinton. And so he was the Civil War vet ghost that was at the park and so 
B.L. Blankenship has come out with a, a horror anthology. And so I have a story in that book about that Civil War soldier and how he came to be a ghost. And so that story is called Big Blue Sky, Bright Red Spatter. But in the future, I plan on doing Pig Face was another one of the characters in the freak show. I plan on either doing a novella or a short story based on him. And there's a female called Octavia. She was the one that was missing from the freak show. There was a water tank that she was supposed to be in. So I'm going to explain all that. So, but basically, yeah, basically I was using season pass to introduce all these other characters and so I'm kind of linking them all together. Okay. Well, and you alluded to it earlier that the backstory for the worm boy is in the back of the book. So after the story, I proceeded on and let me just say, holy shit, (laughs) literally. (laughs) That was was the most, yeah, that was the most dry heave inducing story I've read in quite some time. So, uh, how do the backstories for the other characters in the freak show compare with Worm Boy as far as the gross factor and just being bizarre in general? I mean, are you like trying to outdo one with the other? or <laughs> They're probably going to be very similar. So like I said, I already did the Elephant Man. It's pretty bizarre and it's pretty gross. I don't think it's quite as humorous as the Worm Boy story is, mm-hmm. but uh, it's still pretty filthy. <laughs> um, and then the story I have planned for Octavia should be pretty disgusting and bizarre as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're all going to be pretty much on the same level of, uh, of disgust and filth. Cool. <laughs> Listen, yeah. Yeah. Listeners at home, you have been warned <laughs> before proceeding to the back of the book. <laughs> so my audible book producer and narrator, he told me that when he was going through that part of the short story for Worm Boy, he, he apologized. He said, dude, there was a couple of times where I could not help but laugh out loud. He said, <laughs> he said, I tried to get through it all without breaking down and laughing, he said, but I just could not do it. So he said, it's subtle. And if you listen to it, you can hear him. It is subtle, but you can still pick up on where he's really trying hard not to just burst out laughing yeah. while he's doing it. but. But I kind of like that, though. I kind of like that cut on the Audible. It's kind of it's kind of cool. You know, you can tell he's not just reading this thing and it's not affecting him. I mean, he's having a good time with it, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I always enjoy, like on a Saturday Night Live skit, like somebody that's notorious for holding their shit together, doing a really funny scene, uh-huh. but something just hits them just right and you can see them breaking. It's just mm-hmm. hilarious for some reason. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. Cause it's, yeah, exactly. If somebody <laughs> like that is cracking up, then you know, yeah. I mean, this is some funny stuff going on so yeah I, I love those things too i think they're great those, yeah. those outtakes and stuff i mean they're they're awesome yeah well the story ends with a loose end involving one of the characters so i wanted to know if the story is meant to remain a mystery or will this character recur in another story so we can find out what uh, ultimately happens i initially wrote to the past to be a standalone and i didn't know exactly how it was going to end and then when i got there I was like, you know, in case I ever want to do a part two, I should maybe kind of leave this open-ended situation. So that's why I did what I did. There's a couple instances, not only that scene with her, but I kind of left it with Artie's grandmother. I kind of left it to where that could go in a new direction, as well as the thing with Becca at the end. So if I ever do decide to do a part two, I've got those storylines to kind of follow up on and all that stuff. So, But I do kind of like, too, that it kind of leaves it as a mystery and leaves readers to wondering, like, huh, I wonder, does she come back? Does she stay the way she is? Mm-hmm. So I kind of like it like that. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy it so much, but be so intrigued that they start hitting me up and saying, hey, you need to write part two so we can see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm hoping that's what will happen, but we'll see. All right, listeners at home, you heard the man. Assault him with direct <laughs> messages. <laughs> well, yeah. great book all the way around. Really enjoyed it. And Thank uh, you very much. yeah, link is in the description, folks. Make sure to check that out. But you have a new book that currently at the time of this recording is available for pre-order. And it's in the Wicked Awake series, Dead Friends with Benefits, which is book five of the six book series. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So at this point in the, uh, you know, this is on the apocalypse series. And so by this point, by book five, the U.S. has been pretty much obliterated by the zombies. 
I like to call them pancreas pirates. <laughs> but now our main characters, Jake Hathaway and uh, Kelvin McElroy and uh, Anthony and friends, they're all kind of split up now, but they've all kind of learned what's going on. And so they all realize that basically the government started the whole zombie apocalypse and the plague and all that stuff. But what's even worse is they've also learned that the government has had a cure to make this all better for a long time, mm -hmm. but they refuse to enact it. And they've been letting the plague go on and on for years now. Mm. And it's coming down to where it's, it's a government and a group of people or individuals who are greedy for power and domination. And they're also kind of in on it with world leaders and other nations who are all kind of planning to someday basically take the world over in their evil domination. So that's kind of where we're at is my characters now know what's happening and they know that their backs are up against the wall and time is running out. There's a small window for them to kind of turn things around and stick some big, huge cogs in this government evil wheel. <laughs> and so they know what they need to do. And now it's just a matter of trying to find enough people who are still alive and who have the, the resources and the ability and the guts to stand up to this evil powerhouse. So that's kind of where we're at with book five. All right. Well, uh, what made you want to make it specifically a six book series? Was that planned initially or did it kind of happen after the first book? Yeah, I wrote the first one with all intentions of it just being a one book standalone. And then as I got to seeing all the notes that I had and all the plans that I had for it, I was like, no, this is going to be more like probably at least three or more like a trilogy. And then as I got into book three, I'm like, I still got way too much to tell. And so that's when I was like, I think I can do a six book series, but I'm definitely calling it at six. And I don't want to talk trash about anybody who's, you know, had book series, you know, going into the teens and the twenties, but I just don't want to be that guy. I want to, <laughs> I kind of want to do six and I want them all to be really good. And then I want to end it at that. And if I ever decide to come back and do a Wicked Awake revival, or something like that later on down the road, I can, but I really want to end this thing at six and make every book really good. And hopefully by the end of book six, and after a little while, people will be like, man, I really missed that Wicked Awake series. I wish he would either bring it back or do something similar to that. But I've also got so many other projects that I have in mind that I want to do. So that's part of the reasoning as well. Okay. Well, I noticed that the publication date of book four, which is, I mean, I guess the entire thing is technically about a pandemic that produces zombies. Is that mm -hmm. so? Did you get any inspiration from the actual pandemic? Because let's see, the publication date of book four was September of 2022. So, mm -hmm. I mean, within that, did you kind of, I don't know, import ideas from the actual pandemic into the series? I certainly did. So I started book one years and years ago. And the reason I started this, I was a Walking Dead fan. And my wife said, you know, I was always criticizing the Walking Dead because they were too fast and this was wrong and that's not right. <laughs> she's like, you know, you're so smart about zombies. Why don't you write a book? And she, mm. she basically, she challenged me to do that. And so uh, I did. Hold my beer. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I was like, okay, watch this. And so, yeah, I started working on it. Never thought I would finish it, never planned on publishing it, never thought anybody would see this thing besides, you know, maybe my wife and my kids. And I ended up releasing it in 2020. And so initially it was a government conspiracy where they were doing basically the kind of super soldier experiments. You know, they're trying to make super soldiers. And so they developed this, this called the Zeus serum to make these indestructible warriors. And so that's how book one started. And then, like I said, I released it in March, 2020. And then all of a sudden, boom, the virus was here, the real life virus. And so as that hit us and I was working on the follow-up books, I'm like, you know what? A lot of stuff is happening in real life. I can incorporate this into the book. And so Were you I, behind uh, this whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to indict myself here, but let's just say, but yeah, life imitating my, my, art. my, yeah, exactly. That's what's happening. So yeah, it has progressively changed with the time. So okay. that, that is what happened. 
Well, so from what I gather, the only other novel besides Season Pass that is not part of a collection or a series is Fester. And looking at the dates of publication within your bibliography, Fester was published between book three and four of Wicked Awake, and Season Pass was published between book four and five. So were these stories created as kind of a palate cleanser between books in the series? And if not, where did the story ideas come from? And how did you recognize that they weren't just something to keep on the back burner, that they needed to be published? Yeah. So when you say a palate cleanser, I don't know if you mean for me or for the readers, but. Um, uh, well, I. I guess maybe both, but mostly for you, like, you know, I'm not a writer, so I don't know what it's like uh-huh. to uh, be involved in a long series. Like, do you need to kind of let your imagination rest from that particular line of storytelling or? Yeah. Yeah. And that is what happens. And I don't know if I'll ever do another series again. And I probably shouldn't have started out with a series because I had no idea how much work it was keeping track. I've got pages and pages of notes just keeping track of all the characters that I've introduced and that I've killed off and then like <laughs> updating mm-hmm. if the ones that are still alive, mm-hmm. updating, you know, how old are they? What kind of weapon do they carry? All kinds of different stuff. You know, you don't want to contradict yourself in book six about something that you said back in book three. So it really is a lot of work. So it is nice to take a break from the series every once in a while. And that's why I do it. But I think I said it before, I'm writing for fun. And so I like to keep it fresh, and by changing it up the way I do, it makes it more fun for me. And so I've got a lot of ideas, like I said, going on besides zombies. And so I like to switch it up every once in a while and and change up. And the other thing, too, is I love zombies, but everybody knows that zombies are real. I mean, all you have to do is look out the window when you're driving down the car and you see (laughs) there's zombies everywhere. But I like, so now I'm getting to where I like to write about things that, because I've always been fascinated by the unknown, you know, like, is there life on other planets? You know, the legends and the myths, the encrypted, even crime, you know, like unsolved mysteries. I was always fascinated about crime and the unknown and the Loch Ness Monster and everything. They find these creatures at the bottom of the sea that they've never known existed. I mean, just alien. And so all that stuff has always fascinated me. So I'm kind of getting to where I want to start doing some of that stuff. And so that's what Fester was. I was like, I had this desire to write this book. And so in that one, it's basically about there are aliens walking amongst us on Earth. And so they're from a planet called Caladria. And so I wanted to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Soul Eaters. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was kind of going off the premise of that, but I changed it up a little bit to where these creatures are actually feeding off of human disease. Mm. And so they are here to eat our disease and that's their fuel. And you would think that that's a good thing because they're eating our disease from us. But as you read the story, you'll learn that it's not necessarily a good thing. And there's a lot more to it than that. But I wanted to write that story. And then like we've been talking about season pass. So then the paranormal thing, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another big unknown. So those are the things that I'm really fascinated with. And so I think someday I want to create a book about some kind of a cryptid experience, some kind of a creature that possibly kind of exists, but there's something similar to it. But I don't know. I've got a lot of ideas, but that's kind of what I'm doing is, is I'm just having fun going back and forth between the zombies and some of this other weird shit that I'm thinking about in my head. And I got to let it go before my head explodes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I was looking through the descriptions of the different books in the Wicked Awake series, and it seems like they all contain Jake Hathaway as your main character, kind of like your uh, Robert Langdon, as it were. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully Mm -hmm. that's not offensive to you in any way. (laughs) I don't know what what you think about Dan Brown, but uh, (laughs) he must be a very well fleshed out character in order to appear in all of those books. So... How much of you would you say is in that character of Jake Hathaway? Yeah, so he's from the same hometown that I'm from in Rhode Island. And we differ because after high school, he goes off into the Marines. And and so I did not do that. I did not do any military. But then after that, he ends up a police officer, which I was. And so that's that's the commonality we have. Okay. And then so Jake Hathaway, he was in the Marines when the government started this testing. And so he was one of their guinea pigs. So he is half man and half 
zombie. And so basically they call him a super zombie because he's massive. He's got the incredible strength and he's huge. His skin, basically he's a weapon. And he wasn't the only one. There are a few other ones as well, but he was the main one. And so at this point in the series, he's probably maybe three quarters. So he's morphing gradually. So by the end of book six, who knows how much humanity will be left in him. But that's kind of what he is. And so I kind of feel like I'm a little bit like him because at times, maybe it's because I got all this weird shit going on in my head. At times, <laughs> I do feel like I'm only half human and stuff. So, so I had a brain tumor a few years back that was removed. And, mm. and I don't know if that affects the way that I think and why I think about some of the things that I do. But that kind of makes me sometimes feel like I'm a little bit less than human. So uh, <laughs> maybe me and Jake have that in common as well. But uh, yeah. Did you write before you had the tumor removed? Uh, yeah, I started to work on book one before that happened, but I didn't have a whole lot of it done. I started book one. I had a brain tumor removed. And then a year later, my wife passed. So I had two years there that were super traumatic. And wow. then so I actually put the book away several times and I was just done with it. And so eventually writing became therapy to me. For a while there, I was drinking quite a bit and depressed as fuck and mm. writing became my therapy and so it kind of pulled me out of where i was at now i'm remarried and so i've got my new wife but really working on this thing was therapy for me and it kind of helped start to pull me out of the fire mm. and so now things are really good in my life and so now it's kind of more of my hobby and i enjoy it but i think some of my better writing might have come back when i was in that whole i think some of my darker stuff Mm. might have come from that time in my life where I was really, really low and really down. And so occasionally, you know, now if I want to get to a dark place while I'm writing, I'll kick the coffee table or something like that to feel a little bit of pain to kind of jolt some darkness in me and write a dark scene that I need to write or something like that. But that's kind of what's been going on with, uh, with all that stuff. Yeah. The reason I asked, I was curious when you mentioned having a brain tumor removed, I was listening to Chuck Polinuk on Rogan's podcast and, I think he said he began, I don't know if he began writing, but he began writing very creatively and getting stuff published after he got, I think he said it was kids, like teenagers kind of ganged up on him in the middle of the city. I think he was riding a bike and wow. they beat him. I forget all the details, but they beat him unconscious and he had, wow. he had a concussion and I think... I think he had a skull fracture, not like, you know, his head was caved in, but like kind uh -huh. of, kind of a, what would you call that? Like a hairline fracture in his skull. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that's, uh, that's some crazy stuff. Yeah. And to your point wow. about you started writing to deal with all of this trauma, mm -hmm. as we said before, we are not doling out medical advice. Always seek the help of a doctor but if you if you have depression and PTSD anxiety whatever find something creative to do it is so fucking yes. good for you <laughs> yeah yes i would venture to say that a lot of people do find therapy in writing or i don't have a musical bone in my body but music or some sort of uh, artistic expression like that i think it's it's a tremendous benefit in therapy mhm mm well, I saw that you're in a book of short stories, and when it comes to short stories, do you find that you can write a complete story within that word count, or do you feel like you have to compromise? Yeah, so I've only written like three short stories now, so I still kind of consider myself kind of new to that whole process. All I'd written before was the novel, so so, so far I've written three short stories, but it is it's a completely different animal. I mean, you have so much less time to, I mean, there's no buildup. I mean, really, you just got to get right to it and start telling that story. There's a lot less background. And so it makes it hard to do character development when a story is that short. And so kind of what I've done with the short stories is I find like one or two really big scenes that I want to do and a little bit of character development around them. And that's, kind of about it because you know most of the short stories i've written have been right around three to four thousand words i would say that's probably the average length of a short story but yeah you don't have a whole lot of time to get to it so i usually try to start with a gut punch right from the beginning 
and then talk a little bit about the characters and get ready for another gut punch, and that's about it. It's over. Yeah. Yeah, short stories and novellas, when you get somebody that really knows how to write them well, it always amazes me how, I mean, they can go through the whole story, you know, the background of the characters, the inciting incident, the denouement, everything, the same thing within a novel within such a short period of time. I always am impressed by that. Have you ever thought about doing a uh, novella? Yeah. So I, like I said before, I think I'm starting to see where I think horror novels I don't think there are as many horror novels. I think there's a lot of horror novellas out there. So it seems like it's a different audience and they do like the shorter stories, like the novellas and the short stories. So yeah, and I may even, I'm thinking maybe even that's where I talked about Pig Face earlier. That may be a novella because I feel like I've got enough to where, I think I've got more than enough to do the short story, but I think I might have enough to do the novella. So that may happen with that story right there. But uh, someday I definitely will venture and do that so after i'm done with the wicked awake series i'm probably gonna find a lot of different new things to see what i like and what kind of pasta i can throw against the wall and what sticks and what falls back down and all that stuff throw some screenplays in there too (laughs) oh boy i don't know about that that's uh that's yeah that's a completely uh and i think those are completely different oh yeah uh you know i mean because there's a couple guys that uh I think we're going to talk about Texas Authicon here in a little bit, but there's a couple of guys that I met at last year's event and they're working on, on one now. And it sounds like it's just a completely different piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are you an outliner or a pantser? And if a pantser, how does the story evolve? You know, I was glad to see that you asked me that question because I was dying to answer it. I was all ready to tell you that, you know, it all depends on the mood that I'm in. Sometimes I wear pants and sometimes I don't. So Yeah, I'm not uh, wearing pants right now. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, no, I do plan some things out. A lot of times I'll come up with the title of the book or the story before I even start writing it. And then I usually know how I want to start the thing. Then I usually know how I want to end it. And I usually have, like I said, two or three really juicy scenes really important scenes that I want to put in there throughout there somewhere. But I don't really have a strict outline. I'll have a bunch of notes, um, but not really an outline. And then I started out the way I intend. And then a lot of times it kind of writes itself as I'm going along. And then I kind of steer it towards that ending that I imagined at the beginning. And I get those scenes in there that I want to, but a lot of times things change along the way of throughout the process. So I guess you could say I'm more of a pantser than an outliner. Awesome. Well, what is your writing medium and atmosphere? Uh, When I'm writing, I like to be here in front of my PC in my office. Sometimes I want to be quiet. There are other times where I need some background noise. And so I would throw on like a combination of different kind of tunes and stuff. But then I've talked to some writer friends of mine who said, I guess a lot of them like to have like soundtracks, you know, in the background, you know, like instrumentals, you know, like there's no words. And so I've tried that and I've liked that because I like having music, but the words, a lot of times they will distract you or distract me. So I've found these writers suggested that they do that. I've found that I enjoy that a lot. So, but you know what I really, and I just started to do this. I start to throw on like a Joe Satriani album in the background. And so it's got like the rock music that I love, but it's all just instrumental. And so something like that, I really found that I can uh, write some good stuff. So something like that. And then as far as, you know, I like to drink a little bit of beer and drink a little bit of peanut butter whiskey to kind of get me in my mellow membrane floating around and stuff. But then there are times when I'm not in my office, but I'm like, for some reason, a lot of times I am inspired when I'm on road trips. And so I don't know why, I guess you're driving for a period of time and you got all that open road and my mind just kind of starts to do weird stuff. So then I'll grab my phone and I'll just put on the recorder and I'll just kind of talk into that thing. And then when I get back to the house and back to the office, then I'll put it into the Google Doc that I'm working on. But that's kind of what my process is. And your medium, you said, is like a desktop PC? Yeah, I got two large monitors. So what I like to do is I'll have my Google Doc the actual book on the right side. And then on the left, I have that screen open to where I can 
do some research, have the internet going there and, you know, research things. And, you know, if email pops up, I'll put it up over there and stuff. So I like to have this two screen thing going on at all times. Okay. Is there any, <laughs> I don't mean to belabor the question, but like I did this one time with one guy and I found out something really interesting. He said, no, I use a laptop. And I was like, is it a laptop you've been with for a while? He's like, no, no, I've been through multiple laptops. And he's like, oh, but the keyboard, I don't know what it is. I can't get rid of this keyboard. It's missing keys. It's got gunk in it. <laughs> so he's what been through. The? He's got the most up-to-date laptop, but he's got this old-ass keyboard that sits in his lap that he just won't give up. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. I guess he's that, he's that connected to it that he doesn't want to part ways with uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any, I'm not nearly as attached to any of my uh, my machines here. You know, occasionally you'll hear about people who can write on their phones, you know, write their books on their phones and stuff. And I just, I don't know if I got sausage fingers or what, but there's no way I can use those. I could not do that. I don't know. But then some people, then you hear about some people who, I know one guy, he's a truck driver. And so he, I think he uses Dragon or something like that, where he actually talks into this. Dictates it. Yeah. And it transforms it into a a dock and stuff. And I, I don't know. I'm not real technical. I'm not real savvy with the technical aspect of things. Yeah. (laughs) Well, is there anything you avoid because you feel it stifles your creativity? Um, Just boredom, you know, and that's why I told you I like to switch the genres up on my books every once in a while. A lot of times I'll be working on two books at the same time. I'm starting to get a little bored with this zombie scene that I'm working on. Then I'll be like, you know, screw it. I'll put it away for the day and I'll go back to writing uh, about Warm Boy or, or something like that. So I don't like to be bored and I can't write when I'm tired. And there are times where if I'm just not feeling it, I will never use a word count because there are days when you get in here and you're just like, I'm just not feeling this. And I'm just not going to type shit out just to get words on my fucking screen. I hope you don't mind me dropping. dropping no, no, but, no. Uh, just, okay. No, uh, no terroristic gonna, threats and then we're all good. <laughs> okay. No threats. Uh, I'm not going to put stuff on my dock just to fill up space and to get through this thing because I think, if I'm not having fun, I think my readers will pick up on that. They'll be reading the scene. And they'll be like, yeah, that looks kind of boring. I don't think the dude is feeling it. You know, it, it looks like filler to me. So I'm not going to do that. If I'm not having a good time and enjoying it, I'm not going to do it. So that's kind of what I avoid. But other than that, I can't think of anything else. Okay. Well, from your bibliography, it seems like that you've been publishing two books per year. Is that A, accurate? And if so, is that something you consciously strive for? And if so, do you think you would suffer emotionally in any way if you were prevented from doing that? So I normally aim to do two books a year, do a book every six months. But that was with the novels, with the full-size novels. So now when the Wicked's are over and I'm starting to write the smaller stuff and the shorter stuff, I'm hoping to do more like three a year or something like that. But by no means am I, like I said, I don't use a word count. I'm not a fast writer. I kind of take my time. I'm having a good time. If I get two books out a year, that's great. If I end up doing more than that, then that's cool too. But if it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. You know, I'm kind of a believer in things happen for a reason. So if for some reason there's a year where life kind of throws a kink in my How's that expression go? A kink in my chain? Something like that? I don't know. I mm, made that yeah, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> if for some reason life throws me a curveball and I don't get the two books out that year, then whatever. You know, I'll try harder the next year and hopefully it works out the following year. But as far as feeling uh, suffering or anything like that, that's not the case. Okay. Well, I see that you had your cover made by rockingbookcovers.com, which is owned by a designer named, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to butcher his name, but Asregis, I think. That is him. And I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but yeah. So he's only done the season pass cover for me. I haven't gotten any other covers from him, but he was great. He was really, really good guy to work with. I would love to work with him again. And then I have a different guy, did all the Wicked Awake covers. And then there's the third person who has done my Fester cover. And then he did Headblown, which is that horror anthology cover. So he's done those two. So so I don't necessarily stick with the same designer all the time. They're all very talented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kind of go out there. And I always go with pre-made stuff because I'm a cheap 
guy. <laughs> I almost said fucker. Um, <laughs> I, I don't spend a ton of money on advertising. I don't promote a whole lot. And so I probably sell a lot less books than some of the people that you've talked to. So in that vein, I'm not going to go and spend a ton of money making the book. So I do all the editing myself. I do everything myself except for the cover. So, and I know what cover is very important, but I'll just go out there to the worldwide interweb and see what's already pre-made. And I'll find something like that Fester cover. I saw that a couple of years ago. There was just something about it. And I just kept going back to it. And finally, when I wrote Fester, I was like, hey, that cover that I saw back there, that thing might work. And so I went and I found the artist. I said, hey, do you still have that cover where it looks like the chick's looking out through the glory hole? And he goes, yeah. And so I got it. So that's kind of the way I do it. But all those cover designers are really, really talented. Yeah, but that's a great way to get a good cover for a good price is the pre-made covers. Just because they're pre-made doesn't mean they're not unique and good. Like Christina, I don't know her last name, but uh, Northwest Reader. Okay, so I, yeah, Osborne. So Yeah, oh, Osborne, uh, that's who it is. Okay. It's funny that you mentioned her because I literally just bought a cover from her like two weeks ago. Yeah, she's always putting out badass pre-made covers. She she is awesome. So I've actually, I've bought two covers from her so far. The first one is for Pig Face. And so, like I said, I don't know if that's going to be a short story yet or a novella, mm -hmm. but I bought the cover from that off of her. And then two weeks ago, I bought another cover off of her, which is my future project, which will be the first book I release next year. I don't want to release the name of it or go too much into it, but basically it's going to be a mafia crime story mixed with splatter punk and disgusting, filthy, nasty fucking stuff. <laughs> so that's, is that, a, is that a real, is that a thing? Is that a genre? I, th uh, I think you just created it. <laughs> I think I just created a new genre. Yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what that's going to be. Mark the so, day yeah, as I, the day. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that cover was from her and she's really, really good. So, crazy that you mentioned her name because that's that's a crazy coincidence but yeah she's good definitely well so you self-publish you do your own editing and i'm assuming formatting is that correct yeah so yeah. where did you uh learn this skill set um just really from asking friends other authors how to do it i mean i picked up a little bit of it on my own but like i've already said i'm not very skilled <laughs> uh, technically i mean i'm good at writing i'm good at editing but when it comes to all the technical stuff i had no idea i don't have any writers in the family or any close friends so it's really all just from learning from writers that i've met not in person but like online and stuff like that and some YouTube tutorials and stuff like that but i just kind of figured it out on my own and i know i still am weak at the formatting because i see some of these other books and they just look way better than mine but as far as I'm concerned, I'm really about the story. Not to say that those people aren't. I'm really about my story. And I feel like if my story is really good and the cover is good, I would hope that people don't really care if the first letter in each chapter is a little bit bigger and has some fancy foo-foo at the top of it. Uh, that's the way I feel. I feel like if it's a good story and the cover attracts people to it, it looks good. I mean, you know, I don't have a bunch of errors and a bunch of misspellings and stuff like that. I think that's the important thing. Mm. Anyways, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I'm actually surprised that you said you self-edit it. It's very well formatted. It's not like I'm coming across errors or anything. It's like it was turfed out to a professional editor, <laughs> if that's mm -hmm. the word. Yeah. 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 You know, occasionally I'll uh, either pick up on a slight error. And when I do, there may be one or two misspellings in a book. Mm -hmm. And I'll kick myself and I'll be like, damn, how did I let that one slide? But <laughs> I think overall, I think I'm catching most of the stuff. And I think I'm putting out a pretty good product. Absolutely. Well, tell me about Texas AuthorCon and your role in it, considering you have a uh, separate Instagram account completely dedicated to it. So that's something that a couple friends of mine and I talked about doing years ago, like back in 2021, we, we planned on doing this thing and the COVID hit and that kind of derailed our plan. And so last year, things were finally starting to come back to normal. And so me and 13 other authors, we rented out a convention room in a hotel. So there were 14 of us last year and we, uh, Basically, it's a book signing event. It's a free event. People can come and 
get a book signed from us and meet us. And first one went well enough last year to where this year we've got, instead of the 14, we've got about 60 of us. And so it's the same thing. It's a free event. There are hourly door prizes. Come out and meet some of your favorite authors. I don't know if you know uh, Patrick Harrison the third. We got uh, Duncan Ralston is going to be out there signing uh, people's wombs for them. We got some pretty big name people. It's, and so it's mostly horror, but we've got a lot of other genres as well. We've got fantasy covered. We got mystery, sci-fi, romance, western. We got just about all of the fiction genres covered. So, but it's going to be a good time. And we've got authors coming from as far away as Boston. We've got Rebecca Rowan coming down from Boston. We've got people coming from Iowa, Montana, Florida, I mean, from all over the country. So, and like I said, this is only our second year. So, and we've had to turn, I thought I've had to turn 30, 40 people away who wanted tables. So next year, I would guess that this thing's going to be even that much bigger. So we've also got a discussion room where we're going to have panels and readings and Q&A sessions and stuff. So it's going to be a really good time. So I'm excited about meeting a lot of these other authors, never mind having the opportunity to have readers come out and uh and for me to meet them and so i'm really looking forward to it It should be a fun time all right well what is the life of merrill david like outside of writing it's not super exciting i mean (laughs) uh you know i do a little bit of writing Mm -hmm. uh, putting this event together you know i like to hang out with my wife and we do outdoor stuff we like to garden we like to kayak and do canoeing and a lot of outdoor stuff. I've got a couple grown daughters and she's got three kids, two of which are in college. And so we like to do stuff with family and yeah, I'm really down to earth. If I travel, it's usually back to Rhode Island to see my family or it's road trips around this area. We like to go on car trips and eventually I think we'd like to get an RV and do that whole, uh, that whole uh, scene where we go out to the national parks mm. and check some of those out before they all get occupied by tent cities and homeless people. And stuff. So, <laughs> uh, hopefully we got a few years left before that happens. Yeah. All right. Well, Merrill, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had a good time and uh, I really enjoy your show. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on here with you. It's been, uh, it's been a blast. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? I know you've mm. talked about AuthorCon, but anything you might want to reiterate? Nah, not really. Just uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on the Tickety Talk machine, but I don't do like <laughs> I don't dance and stuff, so I'm not doing very well on Tickety Talk. Mm. But you can find me over there. But anyways, I'm mostly on Facebook. But yeah, feel free to message me at any time and I hope to see a bunch of people out there at Texas AuthorCon but uh, that's about it once again thank you for having me on the show I love the show and it was nice meeting you and talking to you absolutely right back at you well listeners at home all links are in the description and Merrill thank you again for joining me thanks much you have a good evening and thank you to everyone that tuned in If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will have a writer who has resurrected a classic tale and turned it into a modern-day nightmare. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Oh